Tell me if you can identify who this famous person is. Give you a few hints along the way. In 1831, he attempted a business venture. It failed. In 1832, he ran for office in the state legislature. He lost. In 1833, he attempted another business venture. It failed. In 1835, his fiancée died, which devastated him. 1836, he had a nervous breakdown. 1843, he ran for Congress. He lost. 1848, he ran for Congress. He lost. 1855, he ran for the Senate. He lost. And it, not yet. In 1856, he ran for Vice President. He lost. In 1859, he ran for the State Senate. He lost. Finally, in 1860, he ran for the office of U.S. President and won. <laughs> Who is it? Abraham Lincoln. Now, to be fair, uh, my timeline is a little bit skewed there. He did have a few victories along the way. But even so, wouldn't you agree it's pretty remarkable this man experienced so many obstacles and defeats? This man who is widely regarded as one of our greatest presidents in our nation's history. He was a man of great perseverance. Wouldn't you agree? Perseverance is important in life. I would say it's an essential trait to have any success in life is perseverance. You can have a lot of gifts. You can have a lot of talents. But if you do not persevere in those things, then it doesn't really matter. And so since perseverance is so essential in our daily lives, it only makes sense that it's also essential in the Christian life. Perseverance is essential in our prayers. It's essential to growing as Christians, fighting off temptation. And above all, perseverance is essential to follow Christ all of our days and to receive eternal life in the new creation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus repeatedly holds out glorious promises and rewards to his church, but only if they persevere to the end. That's a daunting task, though, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves, we know how weak we are. We know how strong Satan is and the power of this world. But here's some good news for us today. We have a God who preserves us so that we will persevere. Did you get that? We have a God who preserves us so that we will persevere. So you ready to dig in and persevere this morning? That's where we're heading. So let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. As we continue our series there, as you know, John had a revelation of the glorious a vision of the glorious resurrected Christ at the beginning in, in Revelation 1. And Jesus commissioned him to write the book of Revelation, Revelation 2. He tells them to write a series of messages to churches, seven churches located in Asia Minor. The number seven symbolized fullness of perfection, so John was probably speaking to all the churches. Now, these seven messages follow a similar pattern, as we've seen. 
There is four parts to them. There is an address where Jesus addresses the angel to the church there. He also will give a word of affirmation to the church. He knows them and he encourages them in what they're doing. He gives a word of admonition. So he wants them to change, to repent in some different ways. And then he gives them a word of assurance, promising them reward. If they will continue on to the end, they will be blessed in the new creation. Now, we come to the church in Philadelphia. The last two sermons, I've covered two churches each time. That was my plan for this Sunday. But I think this is probably the most challenging of the seven messages. And there's a lot involved here. So I don't want to shortchange the second church that I wanted to cover, Laodicea. So we'll talk about the church of Laodicea next week. There's a whole lot going on here. So I know you might have gotten a little less sleep uh, last night, but I hope you're fully awake. I want you to get your Bible out open because there's a lot to go through here this morning. So let's start by looking at the church in Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was known for some incredible steak and cheese sandwiches. They had a huge bell with a big crack in it, and they had a famous boxer named Rocky Balboa. Archaeologists recently discovered a statue. I did not request that. That's them doing that, being a little bit silly there. But of course, that's found in Philadelphia. That's our Philadelphia, if you're wondering. I'm just kidding there. The original Philadelphia was a little bit different. They didn't have Rocky, I don't think. The original Philadelphia was located 27 miles just south of Sardis. It was founded in 189 B.C. by King Eumenes, who named it after his brother. Philadelphia comes from those two words. Philos means love. Adelphos means brother. Okay. Now, in 178 A.D., an important fact to remember, an earthquake destroyed the city. And so by the time of Revelation, the city had been rebuilt, but people didn't like to live in the city. Many people lived outside of the city because they were afraid of another earthquake. Keep that in mind for a little bit later in the sermon. Sometimes the city was called Little Athens because of the number of pagan temples all throughout the city and emperor worship where they would be required to worship the Roman emperor. That was also prevalent here in Philadelphia. So what is Jesus going to say to this church? Let's see what he says. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So Jesus normally builds off of that imagery from Revelation 1, of that image, uh, uh, that vision that John had. He doesn't do so in this case, but he uses some different titles. He says he's the Holy One and the True One. He also said he has the key of David. Now, you might say, well, what is that? There's going to be a lot of what is that questions as we go through this message. What is the key of David? Well, I think it goes back to Isaiah chapter 22. Remember, Revelation is filled with Old Testament imagery. And I think it goes back to Isaiah 22. There was a man named Eliakim. Eliakim was the steward of the house of King Hezekiah 
from the line of David. Now, this steward would maintain who came in and out of the king's house. The Lord says to him, or says about him in Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Do you see how the language is very similar there, right? To Revelation 3. What's going on there? Well, Eliakim had the authority to allow people into the king's house. Now, in a greater way, Jesus, the heir of David, the Messiah, has authority to, to allow access into the kingdom of God. Do you see that? And so he is allowing, he is the one who opens the door and no one can shut it. He is the one who closes the door and no one can open it. In other words, he is the way to salvation. You might try to make up your own way to salvation, but it is only through Jesus. And he keeps that door open. No one can shut it. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that's Jesus' address to the church. Then he moves to his affirmation in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus knows their works. And again, he goes back to this image of an open door. What is he getting at there? Some say perhaps he's talking about an open door of ministry. In other places in the Bible, it does talk about that. Paul says, the Lord has opened for me a door of ministry to share the gospel. But I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He just talked about the open door. And so I think he's getting at the fact that this church, through Christ, has access to God. It cannot be thwarted. Even though they're going through persecution, no one can stop them from access to God. They can grow. They can persevere because they have this open door. As he's speaking to this church here. And Philadelphia. And because they had this access, they had persevered and they were not denying the name of Jesus. They had little power, though. They had little power. Sometimes we have the misconception that Christianity kind of converted the Roman Empire overnight. It took time. Yes, the church grew a lot, but Christians were surrounded by different belief systems. Uh, they were surrounded by pagan polytheism and this Roman emperor worship, right? And they were experiencing persecution because of their faith, as we've talked about. And this church, too, was experiencing persecution from their Gentile neighbors. They were also experiencing persecution from their Jewish neighbors, if you remember when we talked about this in Smyrna in chapter 2, the Jewish neighbors sometimes, they experienced uh, an exemption from having to go through emperor worship because they knew they were monotheists. And so the church for many years got a path, so to speak. The, the Gentile authorities said they were just a branch of Judaism. But as time went on and the church grew and more Gentiles came into the church... 
some of the Jews didn't like this, and so they told the Roman authorities that these Christians are not Jews, and therefore they should be bowing down to Caesar and practicing emperor worship. And if they didn't, then they would be imprisoned, perhaps even put to death. And so that, was, that is what was going on there in Philadelphia as well. With that background, I want you to see verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, previously I shared how this passage, is; these are strong words, but this passage and the rest of the New Testament is not anti-Semitic. I just want to make that clear, okay? Jesus himself is Jewish. All of the apostles are Jewish. John, the writer of this book, is Jewish. But the key issue is that Jesus and the apostles taught that the Old Testament proclaimed that Israel was going to be renewed and that they would worship the Messiah. The true Israel would be both Israel and the Gentiles who believe in the Messiah and that the church was the fulfillment of these things. So Jesus and the apostles were not rejecting their Jewish ethnic identity, but pointing to the Old Testament's teaching that true Israel would be comprised of Jews and Gentiles who believed in the Messiah. And so the key issue is always Jesus. He's the dividing line of history. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And so his point is, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, if you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, Satan has deceived you. He has misled you. And so in this case, these particular Jews were rejecting Jesus and they persecuted the church. So Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now in verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make them come down and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What Jesus seems to be getting at here is that some of these Jewish persecutors were going to realize that they were mistaken and that they were sorry for their actions. And they were going to come acknowledge that. And there perhaps is also a little bit more in the mix here. That not only were they sorry, but it was going to lead to their salvation. Their sorrow was going to lead to their salvation. Bible scholar Greg Beale, he notes that the Greek word bow down is used 21 other times in the book of Revelation. And in all cases, it refers to worship. So not only were they sorry for the actions that they had committed, but they had also now come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, obviously, we don't read about this because Revelation was probably the last book written in the New Testament. But it certainly makes sense when we understand that much of the early church was comprised of Jewish Christians. And we see people like the Apostle Paul, who were persecutors of the church, who then become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read verse 10. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So this church had kept Jesus' word. And because of that, they were going to be kept from the hour of trial. Now, this, it is possible that Jesus is talking about the end of time. But I prefer to take a different view. I think he's talking about this church, what they were going through there in the first century. As we've seen so far, 
all of the six churches covered, Jesus talks to them in their first century context. He's dealing with their situations and their struggles, right? All of them. And so he's not sort of giving an indication that he's talking about 2,000 years down the road. He's talking about this church, what they were going through, also would have had no relevance for them. So there would be this hour of trial that was about to come on the whole world. So what is that? What is the hour of trial? Well, you got to keep hanging along with me because we're going to see a little bit further in chapter 6 of Revelation. But just as a snapshot of what's going to happen in chapter 6 of Revelation, there's going to be what people call the seal judgments. Not the seals that swim around in the ocean, but the seals that you would put on a scroll. And when you pop off these seals, as we see in Revelation 5, it unleashes a series of judgments. Now, what's fascinating is that the judgments you see that unfold in chapter 6, they match very closely what Jesus says in Matthew 24. When Jesus describes what will take place from the time of his resurrection all the way to the end of time, the various judgments that will take place upon the earth. And they go all the way from that time to the end. And they really get worse at the end of time. Where you see the rise of an Antichrist. You see rebellion. You see Jesus return and bring judgment. Okay? So what I think Jesus is getting at here is he, he is saying, look, the book of Revelation not only speaks to the first century, speaks to today, it also speaks to the end of time. We make mistakes when we put Revelation just talking about the first century or it just talks about the end of time. It's a speaking to all of these eras, okay? So as for the church in Philadelphia, Jesus said he's going to keep them from the hour of trial. So what does that mean? What means he's going to keep them, not remove them from the earth or to remove them entirely from the trial, but he is going to preserve them while they are in this trial that's about to come. In fact, in John 17, 15, Jesus says a very similar thing. When he prays for the apostles, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. This is really interesting. There's only two times in the, in the whole New Testament where these two words appear together, keep from. They appear in Revelation 3 and here in Jesus' prayer. And so what Jesus is getting at, track with me here, he's not saying, I'm going to remove you from Satan altogether, but I'm going to sustain you while Satan afflicts you. Obviously, he didn't remove them altogether. Jesus prayed this prayer the night before his crucifixion. Soon after he prayed that prayer, what did all the disciples do? They denied Jesus. They deserted Jesus. Satan wanted to sift them, and Jesus allowed them to come and afflict them for a season. But he would not allow Satan to tear them away from Jesus, would he? He sustained them in the trial. Do you see the difference? He kept them. And he's going to do the same to the church at Philadelphia. He will not remove them from the trial, but he will sustain them in the midst of the trial. Jesus concludes this affirmation with these words in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
So he is going to come and he's going to provide help for this church. The church is already having the open door and they're experiencing persecution. But Jesus is going to come. He's going to provide for them the strength they need to keep persevering in the midst of their onslaught, this trial that they will experience. They will not lose their crown, the crown of life. Now, normally Jesus gives an admonition, right? But in this case, he doesn't. He goes right to the assurance, right to the assurance. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. So Jesus promises rewards if they will endure, if they will persevere. Four different things that he talks about, but really all of them are just focusing on life in the new creation. To start, he says that they will be pillars in the temple of my God. Now, I know that doesn't sound as exciting <laughs> to say you're going to be a pillar in the temple of God as receiving a crown of life or whatever it might be, but it's actually very exciting. Because when we understand what God is getting at here, we know there's no more temple, right? The temple was destroyed, and the church is the temple of God. We are where God dwells, okay? And so that's a wonderful promise that's come to pass, and it's going to become even greater in the new creation. Because Jesus says in Revelation 21 and 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So there's no more temple, but the whole earth, the new creation, is the temple. God is going to dwell with His people in a deeper and a more profound way than we experience even now as the church. Heaven's going to come to earth. And we are going to be a temple, or excuse me, a pillar in that temple. It doesn't mean you become a pillar. But what he's getting at is that you will be there and you will not be removed. You have security to be there. Now, for the church at Philadelphia, this would have been even more wonderful news. Remember them, the earthquake city? So to have a pillar that's not going anywhere, that would be wonderful news, wouldn't it? They were safe and secure in the new creation. Jesus also talks about writing on them three different names, the name of God, the name of the city of God, and the name of Jesus. Again, what does this mean? A lot of those in this passage. Now, I don't think it means that there's going to be divine tattoos on us or graffiti that God's going to write these things on us. What naming was getting at was that God, when he would name something, it showed his authority, right? He has the power to give that authority to that name. And you have a new status and you have security. And so when we have the name of God written on us, it just simply means that God owns us. We are possessed by God. We're not going anywhere, he does the same thing in Revelation 22, 4, when he says his name will be written on our foreheads. We are the people of God, and he is our God. God. He also says that he's going to write the name of the city of God. The city is what? The new Jerusalem. Make sure you note that. It's not the old Jerusalem. It's the new one. It's the one that's going to come down from heaven. Heaven's going to come to earth. And we are, in fact, the new Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21. 
John has a vision of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And what John conveys is that the the city that comes down, it's not only a place, but it's also the people. The new Jerusalem is called the bride of Christ. So we are, we are the new Jerusalem. And then he also, Jesus says he's going to write on us his new name. He doesn't say what it is. Some people say, we don't know. I think he probably means the name Lord. He's always been Lord over creation, but he became Lord of redemption when he assumed all authority from the Father and said, go and make disciples of all nations, because that is what we're called to do. He is Lord of all. He is the one who has authority over us. Jesus closes by saying, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus said this for all the different churches, right? He's saying it to the Philadelphian church. He's saying it to us. If you have ears to hear, please hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And he said a lot, didn't he, (laughs) in in this letter. He's got a whole lot packed in here. Now, as I close, I want to talk a little bit more about perseverance in the Christian life. Jesus has really stressed this in these letters. He has really stressed the need for the church to persevere. To the Ephesian church, he said that he, he commended them for their patient endurance. To the church at Pergamum, he said he affirmed them for holding fast to his name. To the church at Thyatira, he commanded them to hold fast until we return. The church at Sardis, he, uh, he commanded them to keep what they had received and heard. Now for the church at Philadelphia, he affirmed them for keeping his word and not denying his name. And then he commanded them to hold fast. So that no one would come and take away their crown. Over and over again, Jesus tells the churches to persevere. Amen? We are to persevere. But here's the challenge, isn't it? We're weak, aren't we? If we're honest with ourselves, wouldn't you say that you are weak sometimes in the Christian life? And we look around us, we have Satan besieging us at all times. We got the world tempting us in different ways. So how on earth are we going to persevere? Is it in our strength? Not at all. We praise God that we have a God who will persevere us because he will preserve us. We will persevere because God will preserve us. He will preserve us. He's given us an open door that no one can shut. No matter what the world does, we have an open door. And the Bible says that if you have truly come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that no one can snatch you away from him. Jesus said this in John 20, excuse me, 10, 28 to 29. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You are entrusted to Christ and the Father. Someone said to me after church one time, he he gave the image of we're placed in their hands, and it's just like we're cupped over, right? We're just safely sealed. No one can snatch us away. I love that image. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God is going to bring your salvation to completion. Now you might say, well, why does God command us to persevere if we will anyway? That's a great question. 
Here's the answer to that. God uses his own commands to preserve us. Did you get that? He uses his own words to preserve us by his strength and by his power. When you hear the word of God, if you are a true child of God, it motivates you, it energizes you, it propels you on to keep pressing on, knowing, yes, I am weak, knowing sometimes I want to give up, but when I hear that word of God and when I keep pressing on, it propels me forward. Not in our own strength, but in His. So church, persevere. Do not give up. Keep fighting. Fix your eyes on those glorious rewards that Jesus promises. Those rewards are getting closer day by day. Yes, there are going to be trials that you will face. But if you will think properly and think biblically, those trials are only a tiny fraction compared to eternal life. You know, we'll, we look forward to warm weather this time of year, right? We endure many long months of cold weather because we look forward to that warm weather. But if you think about it, on balance, it's kind of about an equal amount of cold weather and warm weather. And you, sometimes you think, well, maybe all the trials of this life are about equal to eternity. You couldn't be any further from the truth. It's a complete one-sided, lopsided affair. It would be like all the cold weather being one second and the warm weather being the rest of the year. The trials of this life are so short in comparison to eternity. And the difficulties you endure are so small to the glories you will experience. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So church, that is why we persevere. We must persevere. Florence Chadwick was a famous swimmer in the 20th century. She was the first, uh, first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. In 1952, she tried to swim from Catalina Island in the Pacific to the mainland of California. That day, the weather was foggy and chilly, and it hindered the boats from accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. Unbelievable. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, who was in one of the boats, encouraged her along, told her she was close and that she could make it. But eventually, she stopped because she was exhausted physically and mentally. After she stopped, she soon realized that the shore was less than half a mile away. The next day, she said at a news conference, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Church, there are going to be times when you want to give up on God. But don't focus on the fog. Don't focus on the trials that you're going through at that moment. Focus on the shore. Focus on the eternal life that is getting closer to you every single day. Persevere. Don't give up. Keep fighting. 
Keep fighting. Keep pressing on. You're almost there. You're almost there. You are almost there. Keep persevering. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you today and we are humbled by Jesus' insistence that we persevere to the end. We know that we are weak, but Lord, when we are weak in you, then we are strong. Lord, I pray that you would keep us, that you would let none of us fall away. Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on the glorious promises that you offer. And Lord, that we would deepen in our trust that you truly can sustain us, that we have that open door and that we have all that we need in Christ Jesus. Lord, I think of the words that Jude so beautifully wrote at the end of his little letter when he said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Lord Jesus, bring that to pass. We ask it. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has never begun this journey, but Lord would like to. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see their need to confess their sin, to turn from their sin, and to believe in you as their Lord and Savior. To believe that you went to the cross to die for their sin. And that, Lord, you have made a way, you've opened a door of salvation that you would like for them to enter. May today be that day when they cross that threshold and trust you as Savior and Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is so powerful. May it do a powerful work in each of our hearts throughout this week as we think and meditate upon these wonderful words. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Amen.